Hello, James. Hello, Jack. So you're a uh, you're a couple months back into you know, the live poker grind, or you were in Vegas, and I can't remember is uh is Seattle are any of the games in Washington available, or are yeah. you back in the drought? Yeah, they're um, they're going right now. You know, uh, everyone's initially not everyone was required to wear a mask, but now they got everyone in masks. Um, there was a brief window of five-handed play, which was pretty fun. But, you know, now they got seven-handed play. They've got some some plexiglass dividers. And, um, yeah, everyone's required to wear masks. So it's looking a little bit different. But, um, you know, it's still uh, it's nice to be back out there after not being able to play for several months. Well, I'm glad that you uh, are experiencing a return to live poker. I look forward to continuing my own. And when you think of live poker, uh, there's one name that comes to mind in the, uh, in the live poker education business, and we've got him on the show today. It's Bart Hansen. Bart, how are you doing? Good. How's it going, guys? Uh, it's going very well. Art, has anyone been in this for longer than you have you know, in terms of creating live poker content? Uh, really? I mean, not to my knowledge. I mean, the only... It, several things have happened over the last obviously with the COVID thing that, that have, have hurt at least my business over the last, say, 12 months. And besides the COVID thing, actually, one of the things is a lot of competitors into the space, a lot more competitors into the space. So, you know, I started off doing a podcast for a website called Poker Road. I don't know how old you guys are, but this was a, a media website that was started by Joe Seabock in, back in 2007. Barry Greenstein and I was a host on their sort of their show their their tournament show where we traveled around and I wasn't really necessarily the best fit for that I did that for about a few months and then in 2008 I sort of started a strategy podcast that was on their site called Cash Plays and I, I'm fairly certain that was that could that was probably the first strategy podcast on a regular basis that was done. I don't know of any of anyone else that, that did those. And I actually did a fair amount of interviews and all those shows actually can be found on my YouTube. Like if you go to crush live pokers, YouTube, they're all in the, I think they're in a playlist called cash plays, but they're all there. I did some, I did an interview with Tom Dwan and Negreanu, and I was trying to steer them towards strategy. And then of course we talked some hands as well. And then, I got hired by Deuces Crack, which was one of the original training sites like Card Runners in 2009. And then I worked and did a podcast for them for maybe three years. And then Black Friday hit. And then I was like, I can do this on my own. And I started my own training site in 2013. At that time, though, I really was the only one that was doing any type of live analysis over live stream because the only live stream that was out there was Live at the Bike. So I was really the first one that was doing poker training videos over live poker. Now card runners and deuces cracked and some others had done training videos, but it was over, you know, somebody playing online, but I was the first one that was doing it over, you know, live video. And that has gone now for what we're in maybe our seventh or eighth year. So yeah, we started in two th beginning late. Yeah. Beginning of 2013. So yeah, it's been seven or eight years going strong and uh i'm actually in the middle of a, of a website refresh i'm building out version two 
but yeah, it's like, you know, it's one of these things where I've got a base of people that really like me and, you know, I think they'll be with me forever. The trick in this business is to, to, to have retention. And there are so many competitors really that are in the space now that sort of segmented out. I'm not exactly sure if it's going to be necessarily a long-term thing. I, you know, to boil it down, I could always do a podcast like every week and there'd be a lot of people with me. The, 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 the owning the company part and running the company and doing videos and having a bunch of coaches and stuff like that. I don't know how long that's going to necessarily go on for, how long that's going to be viable. You know what I mean? Like I don't, we, we were talking before the show about how long is poker going to be online poker going to be viable. We were saying, well, you know, you wouldn't play somebody in chess for money without knowing them without knowing the other side. And that's really kind of the thing with online poker is you don't, it's really difficult to play high stakes and play, you know, a random person when they can be using computer aid. It really is similar to, to, you know, chess. Like you're not going to play somebody you don't know for a thousand dollars. that says that you're there below your rating or at your rating because they could just easily use a computer aid. And that's exactly what's going on now in online poker. I mean, and, and besides the fact of collusion and stuff. So live poker, I think will always be played from a business perspective, the more competitors that enter the space and the more time my competitors can actually put into making content, it is certainly going to be a challenge as a very long-term thing. Like, I don't know how long I'm going to do this for. I could, like I said, I could always record the podcast. That's a very, very easy thing. And I could also always make video. So, you know, I take a step back and sometimes I think, well, what if it, what if I just boil the website down to just me doing a video on a podcast a week? And really that that's what's delivered. There's, there's nothing else really going on. And, you know, maybe that's something for the future. Yeah. It's certainly been a profitable venture for me over the last seven years. That's for sure. Uh, I, I cannot complain, but now in poker training though, I have not necessarily taken the time to be the best at this. I mean, people can look at solvers and say, try to find GTO solutions to certain situations. And, you know, anyone can do that. So it doesn't really, t- I mean, obviously it's going to be presented in, a, in, a, in an understandable way, but I think where people go and they lean on my stuff and why I've been so successful is because of sort of the experience with live patterns and saying, oh, well, this guy, he's new to poker or, you know, he's playing two, three, he's playing five, five. It's only been, you know, he's only been playing for like a year. When he does this, it usually is going to mean this because this is how someone else has usually played who only has one year of experience. Like I've seen a bunch of people that have only had one year of experience. They tend to fall into the same types of patterns. So that's really where I think my value comes into play. And, uh, you know, I'm never going to be, or at least not right now. I haven't put the, I haven't decided not to go in that direction right now. I'm not going to be somebody that's going to be able to shoot out a GTO response, nor am I someone that knows how to use the intricacies of solvers. Well, I obviously, I, I think I could learn to do that. It's just, hasn't been a priority for me. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe in the future, but you're never going to get the most profitable lines, especially at mid to low stakes poker by trying to play a, 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 an equilibrium style. So, 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something we talk about on this show a lot. Our sort of pet opinion here at Just Hands is that solvers are grossly overrated, even if used quote unquote correctly. And yeah, I think, you know, in, in the era of solvers, experience is perhaps underrated. And I think you, you're bringing that to the table in spades, no pun intended. I remember actually, you know, back in the day, so this will give a sense of my age, but I guess in probably 2012, I was in the 18 to 21 range. And I remember we would, you know, I, I was living in Ohio at the time and there was really nowhere to play live poker here as, uh, you know, an over 18, under 21 year old. And so we would go to Michigan with, I had a couple of friends and we would go to the Soaring Eagle, which is a small casino um, on, you know, American Indian land up near Saginaw, Michigan. And we would download MP3s of Deuces Correct, you know, talk about, you know, ancient technology and listen to them on the way. And it was very helpful. We did well. Uh, so, you know, appreciate the content you've been putting out for over a decade now. And what, what, what downloads of MP3s? You mean of my show? Yeah, of Deuces Cracked. Well, because Deuces Cracked, right? They were, I was the only one that was doing podcasts. So right. they would, but I remember they were unique where they let you download stuff. And I let you download stuff too on my site. So people still download MP3s from my site too. But as far as I know, I was the only podcast on there. So you must have been, in terms of an MP3, you must have been listening to, uh, to Deuce Plays, which was the name of the podcast. Right. Yeah, it was Deuce Plays. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great show. Um, yeah, that was, was a great t- that was a great time of of live poker too for me because during that time, which was between two thousand nine to two thousand twelve, I really was playing full time live poker, and then I was just you know doing the podcast. So, and that was also a time when at Commerce they had just started the five ten game fifteen hundred cap. So sort of the mm-hmm. history of No Limit, which is kind of interesting, is that when the moneymaker boom came around, which was really right after, I mean, that's when I started, I, so I sort of got into things like right after that, 2004, they capped, you know, somebody at the no, in the casino figured out, well, we can't have No Limit be truly No Limit. We need to put a cap on it, especially at the low levels. So you know, there would be originally there was, I God, I want to say it was a two, five, 200 max buy-in at commerce. And then it was 1020 uncapped. There was nothing in between. This is 2004. Then they had a 510, 400 max buy-in. And that lasted until about 2008. And then they started 510, 1500, which is what the game is now. Mm-hmm. And then in 2010, they then they finally put in a 5-5-500 cap game. So I was playing 5-10-1500 cap at the time when like there was no game in the middle. So you just had everyone just like it was a fish fest. I mean, the, especially that 2009 year before they, before they instituted 5-5-500 cap, which is kind of like a pretty soft 5-5 game, but it's, you know, uh, you get a lot of recreational players. When they instituted that game, we lost a lot of the big fish that would buy in for 500 at 510 to go down to that level. But 
yeah, I mean, I had played 2000 hours for at least two or three years straight, 2009 to 2011. I think I played 2000 hours each year, at least 5,000 hours of live poker over the course of those three years. And that was just a, that was a time where I sort of draw my experience from, you know, what does it mean? What do certain things mean when we are up against weaker competition? What are the common patterns that weaker competition falls into? And I still bring that stuff into my current training as well. I mean, one of the things that I talk about is, is, you know, if you notice that somebody doesn't, that always takes a showdown, and I'm sure if you've listened to Deuce Plays, this is where this came out, showdown monkeys. Like if, ever, if everyone always takes a showdown in position when they're last to act on the river, then when they bet, they inherently become polarized and you can pick, you can pick off a, a fair amount of bluffs. And it's also the way that they think about you because they, and I've, I've talked about this a lot recently, like they might not even know what the word polarized means, but because if they were in your spot, they wouldn't bet on the river in position because they wouldn't want to get check raised. When they see you bet, if they're your opponent, they will think the same way that they would be in there in that position, meaning that this guy's only betting mm-hmm. a really strong hand or a bluff. So they'll call you down lighter. So it's really key to make thin value bets because you'll get called because these guys don't see the other people in the player pool do that. So they're not far off and sometimes, you know, making light calls because people don't do that. I mean, again, that, that was 10 years ago. Still though, it's still applicable, you know, here, yeah. you know, I, I remember I also um, listened to some of those older podcasts when I was kind of getting started, which was not that long ago, probably like four or five years ago. But um, the bet the bet fold line on the river is um, very important to be comfortable with. <laughs> um, and I remember you hammering that home. And um, yeah, that's probably made and saved me a lot of money. Well, re- well recently there's been... And maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm taking it out of proportion, but it's, it, it seems like there's been some attack on me or attack on Crush Slide Poker uh, saying that, like, oh, all he does is teach how to bet fold. And, and, and that's really not the case because I will often bet call when, you know, certain things don't make sense. I actually did a, a two-part episode recently, the last month, about when I will, what, how do I determine whether I'm going to bet fold or bet call? Because there are certainly situations where I'm not going to bet fold. If a guy raises me on the river and it makes absolutely no sense, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bet call, right? Like, like if the board has been draw heavy the entire time and it's pretty rare that someone's going to wait until the river to raise, then I'm going to be calling, you know, as opposed to, but I mean, I mean, listen, like for the most part, yeah, the rivers are, are pretty under bluffed you know, in live poker, which if you can understand that and you actually believe in that, you see it, then what that means is that you really do have to bet thinly when you're in position on the river because it's just a free roll, right? Like, I mean, if you're playing against equilibrium types of responses, you're not allowed to bet as thinly on the river for value because sometimes you'll get blown off your hand. But if you're playing against 
an opponent that is so seldomly check raise revert bluffing you seldom in the sense that you'll never be calling their raise because the pot odds are just aren't worth the, you know, the, the, you know, you're just not going to be getting the pot odds. Then, then you have to bet more often, much more often. Right. Because, you know, you're just, you're, you're losing, you're leaving value uh, and you're not getting blown off of your hand. Yeah. I mean, I think there's people are resistant, you know, and I think there's a, Part of it, part of the discourse in poker definitely comes from the kind of competition amongst poker thought leaders. And, you know, poker is taken on a very sort of like educational tone these days because it's a good way to make money in the game. Or at least, you know, as, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, that might be changing to a certain degree. Regardless, you know, if you're the bet fold guy, then there is an incentive to paint that as like a bad or an outdated or an overly simplistic strategy when in all reality it's not (laughs) the it's a simple strategy sure but that doesn't mean that it's wrong but you know if the people who realize that and maybe have been following you and are satisfied with that and the sort of nuances that come around that approach not that like you're the bet fold guy but i'm just saying that you know someone who's trying to disrupt sort of incumbents in the space necessarily has to like take a new and different angle on things. And so there's this sort of a constant narrative of progress where, you know, the game changes. Yes. But in other ways, the game is static. And I think the sort of the static element is that we're, we were humans in 2007 and we're humans today and humans fall into certain patterns and that's, that's unlikely to change. Yeah, especially ever. yeah, especially at certain experience levels, and it's you know I I think what has changed in the game amongst recreational players is that some have been forced to have to play better. It's not that they're necessarily going to training material, but w- the training material that they might be going to would be what's the easiest thing to learn is is the preflop hand selection, right? Instead of playing 50%, they've been forced to go down to play 30% because there are more good players in the pool. There are more people that are playing for profit in the pool. So they're either going to quit or they're going to stop, you know, they're going to stop the bleeding. Like I truly don't think that there are guys that are having, you know, going to have such a, you know, going to have a good time on a weekend like there used to be tons of those guys. Those guys aren't looking at training material uh, you know, to get better in poker. The problem is, is that there are less of those guys, far, far less of those guys because they've been eaten far, far quickly because there are more people that are playing for profit. So a guy back in 2009 could have you know, even, I mean, I actually knew some guys that played like a very, very high VPIP. They were pretty bad players, but they were aggressive and they might even have been slightly winning players, but it was because the the average player strength pool was so poor. The problem with LA, see, it's still pretty good down here in Texas though, but the problem with LA, to be perfectly honest with you, and I don't know how, I don't really know the answer to this question. I mean, I've sort of put it out there a little bit, it's uh, a lot of foreigners really is what the problem is. is that, and I'm not talking about just because they're non-US. I'm talking about people who come 
from outside the country to play for profit. They're easy to spot. They usually come in groups, in waves, not only to the, in, the casino in an individual day, but they'll come in a group together to travel to a city. So what you end up have, have happening is, is that, you know, let's say commerce, like on average has four, five, 10 games going. So in, in order to support a player pool that always has four, five, 10 games going, let's say that there are, I mean, I'm just kind of sort of making up numbers, but I, I think this is somewhat accurate. You know, in order for there to be 36 players playing all the time or on average, let's say that the player pool is 500 players that say play more than two times a month. Okay. That probably, I think that's somewhere accurate. Could be more than that. Right. So 500 players and they play more than two times a month. And maybe there's like a, you know, maybe of that 500 players, there's like, I don't know, 50 guys that play at least a hundred hours a month, you know, or maybe more 50 or 75 guys that play at least a hundred hours a month. Now, if you inject into that player pool, eight guys could even be less than that, but let, let's just say eight guys. Cause these guys travel in groups that are going to play 160 hours a month and they're all decent winning players. Some are more skill levels than others. That's going to have a drastic effect on the player pool because pretty much every time you go in, most of those eight players are playing across those tables, those four tables. You know what I'm saying? Because like they're coming, they're living at the casino. They're they're putting in so much volume. Yeah, that, and, and then if you've got multiple groups at the same time, and the, the the thing that I said that's somewhat controversial is is that it's a little bit of a like I said, I don't really know what to say about it. It's not necessarily a tax issue that I have the issue with. It's it's an issue of these guys are coming in on tourist visas and they're coming in to basically play for profit. So they're coming in, they're saying they're tourists, but their sole, their primary purpose of coming into the country is actually to make money, to, to earn income. Now, for me, from an American perspective, if I'm a professional poker player, I have a problem with that. I have to pay taxes. Just like if somebody, if I had a job doing something else, if I was a computer engineer and somebody came in on a tourist visa and competed with my computer engineer job, somehow made me make less money or took a higher opportunity. You see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going with it? I don't yeah. know, really know what the answer is to it, but it's just, it is what it is. And the issue and the other, you know, to go further with that is, is that most of these guys don't act in a way that is welcoming to the recreational players. I mean, yes, they're easy to spot. They just don't, they're, you know, very hoodie, very like yeah. headphone-ish. They're also like, they're less incentivized to like build a gambling atmosphere long-term. Right, like a rapport. Because they're right. only going to be there, like right. they're like doing a hit and run kind of right. over right. over a couple months sample. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I've heard that this these guys have you know, these foreigners and it, it's funny cause I make, <laughs> I'm saying, we, we call them euros and I, and I say it's a euros, but, but when, <laughs> when I say euro, I'm referring in the poker sense, I'm referring to anyone that's non us or Canadian. So I'll call the South Americans euros too, but you'll see groups of guys, uh, you know, from Argentina, from Brazil, from Europe. Yeah. And they were in their, in LA, 
Um, they're in Vegas. They're in Washington D.C. They're at they were at the Encore in Boston. Some in Southern Florida, and then they're not in certain cities entirely. Like for example, in Phoenix, like in Talking Stick, they've never seen a Euro in their entire life. They're not really here in in Texas. So it's kind of interesting, you know. Like I said, I don't really know what to say about it or or what can be done, but that has had a drastic effect. If you were to say, what is the thing that's had a drastic effect on live poker? It's not training materials. It's not solvers. It's influx of foreign players that come in for months of the time, months of the time to play for profit. That was not something that happened in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. That's a relatively uh, recent type of thing. You know, we talk about perceived range versus actual range and so you know i don't want to say that this is the actual range of these parts of the country but potentially if you're looking to make profit at poker you should go somewhere that's perceived to be unfriendly to foreigners and maybe that's that's the uh, gto solution in terms of locating <laughs> yourself I, I mean i don't know i i think partially for in the in, in the talking security in phoenix i think what has kept them free of these foreign profit players is the fact that their no limit is truly not no limit that it's sort of cap betting uh and when if you're a foreigner that likes to play deep and you're coming that's probably not gonna be the first place that you're gonna choose right yeah so um i've played you know a similar like a great place if you were a foreigner in my opinion if you're looking to play deep uh and play in really good games would be somewhere like biloxi but, yeah, I don't know yeah. anything about that. That's actually one one place that I don't. I've never been to any of those. I've never been to Biloxi or Tunica or anything like that. I mean, it would surprise me if they have big games there, though, on a regular basis. Do they? Well, every game is uncapped in Biloxi. Right. Right. Okay. And so, right. from a blind standpoint, no. Mm. But the two five game is it is quite large. Uh, you know, probably like average buy-in somewhere in like the two to three thousand range. Well, that's the same thing here in Texas. That's what's unbelievable here about Texas. And people are like, oh my God, Bart, <laughs> this is another thing. Right? Bart Hansen's broke. He's playing one, three, no limit. So Texas is here, it's match the stack, which is in essence uncapped, right? The one, three game here plays far bigger, especially if it's the only game. If it's the, if it's the largest game, it will play far bigger than a five, five game in LA that's capped at 1,000 or capped at 500, you know? Yeah. Blinds are really just a suggestion. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's it's really interesting, especially if they're doing straddles and stuff. But you know, again, I, I think that for the recreational players, it probably doesn't matter, and live poker will always continue to go on. But there's an inherent flaw in live no limit. There's a structural change that they should make immediately, and I don't know why they don't do it. I mean, it could be because people are concerned about it, and that is that all the games should have an ante. Every form of no limit has an ante. That's why antes are played in no limit tournaments. But there was no, you know, no limit. If you remember what Scalancy said, no limit is well, pre pre money maker. No limit is a dead game unless your mm-hmm. uh, unless your opponents are playing with invisible antes, which of course everybody does, especially in a one three game, right, where the open size might be to twenty five, because that's what really dictates the size of the game, the open size. But if somebody's opening to twenty five at one three. What's your sort of optimal response to that? Like you could just best hand those guys, right? 
you could play like 5%. There is no incentive for you to enter a pot without a good hand, a really good hand, if someone is opening to 8x when the blinds are only 1-3. Now, if everybody had a $5 ante in the hand, I mean, that's a huge ante. You can see where I'm going with it. But no limit is supposed to be played with an ante. That's why no limit deuce to seven, which is really the Cadillac of poker, which they still play at the World Series, and occasionally they'll play it at cash games at Commerce. No limit deuce to seven is always played with an ante. Every form of no limit, especially in a tournament at the World Series, now that they have these mixed tournaments as well, like these hybrid you know, dealer's choice tournaments, every single no limit event, every single no limit game has an ante. No limit five card draw, no limit deuce to seven, whatever it is, no limit it's supposed to have an ante. So again, yeah. it's like, well, maybe they don't need to put an ante in in the lower games because people play so loose anyways, but no limit should be a dead game in a cash game. Well, a nine-handed cash game. There really shouldn't be, there no one should be able to beat the rake. If you played optimal even close to optimal pre-flop ranges, it would be hard to win. I'm I'm saying if you put yourself at a table where everyone was playing where, you know, under the gun was playing 10% of their hands. And, and each appropriate position was playing what is close to equilibrium V-pips. That would be extremely hard to, to – it would be extremely hard, especially in L.A. drop games where they're taking a modified drop, even pre-flop, where there's no flop. And they're taking the entire collection, no matter how big the pot is, if you see a flop, right? That's the difference between drop and rake. Um, it would be hard for anyone to profit, really. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, collusion gets a bad rap, and that's for good reason. But really, collusion is what has sort of saved Nolan at Hold'em. And it's a pre-flop collusion by virtually all the players to play too loose. <laughs> right, right, I guess if you look at it that way, yeah. <laughs> we've, all, we've just all agreed that we're going to play too loose. Yeah, I And mean- it's an unspoken agreement. And I, what you're sort of advocating is that like, we don't need to collude anymore if we just have an ante. And that's a better approach because the problem is you get people who you know, can succeed by just playing tighter. Yeah, they, 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 a, they're, a, they're, yeah they're the ones that don't agree to, to collude to play loose, right? Yeah, and it's a, you know, I understand why they do it. It makes sense. And there's nothing you can really do to stop it in a public setting. Right, right. So, yeah, you know, I agree with you that the the easiest way to remedy that in a public setting, at least, is to add an ante. In a private setting, there's another easy solution uh, that is employed uh, quite liberally, actually. Uh, <laughs> what is that? Just to kick the person out of the game? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, the, the whole world of private games is its own thing. I mean, there's so... It's just not a world that I'm really all that interested in. I understand that it's its own sort of skill set, especially if you're a player in the game that plays profit and you have a deal with the host or if you're a host of the game. It's just a whole different world, especially if you're running one of the games and then you're dealing with collecting money and stuff. I've just never really had interest in the world of private games. Especially I, as a professional player, because there's a lot of risk in the fact that you you'll be the last one that gets paid, 
right? And there's shenanigans that go on. Maybe you got to pay a percentage of your winnings. And um, I just have always thought that it was easier, actually, if you wanted to play for profit, just to play a straight public game than go through all the shenanigans of, of a private game. Yeah, I think that might be true. So politically, I skew very libertarian. And I've, I've always wondered, you know, if you had much sort of more open gambling laws, where would poker happen? And what would it look like? Would it happen in these casinos where all the other gambling that's legal happens? Or would it happen in sort of, you know, independent poker clubs, you know, where, where do players want to play? And what kinds of things would be tolerated in terms of like, you know, what sorts of behaviors would just be, you know, would you just get kicked out for, you know, not being good for the game? Because I, I agree, part of the problem with the private games today is that because you're mostly dealing with kind of like gray market realities, uh, things are just sketchy, you know, and you can only get so professional with a private game where, you know, in an environment where, you know, private companies could just sort of set up, you know, a, a casino wherever or a poker room wherever and run it however they like, basically trying to maximize profit for the house, but where you had an you know, open market of people who could do that and compete on things like rake and service, what would poker look like in that form? And my guess is that it wouldn't be part of a casino and it also wouldn't tolerate players who just sort of sat there and didn't say anything um, and just played tight and tried to beat players who were sort of colluding to play a little bit looser and have more fun per se. Well, I mean, there actually is, I'm not sure if you're aware, there's actually empirical evidence of what you're talking about. I mean, the Austin poker scene, which is about five years old, you know, Texas poker, if people aren't familiar, it's somewhat of a gray area. They've chosen not to really enforce the state laws. So the proprietors basically sort of go to the local ordinance city and say, hey, we want to basically open a membership poker club and there really isn't a license that's given but if the proprietor feels like there isn't that much risk at the state level and the city's not going to kick them out then they do it and the way that it's set up is is that you pay a membership fee could be monthly it could be yearly or you could pay a day fee and uh you play and it's a time collection like at tch austin which is the you know the card room that i have close connections with and i do some commentary for the live streams. That's what it is. It's, you know, it's 10 bucks an hour, but going along with what you're saying though, they have private games in those clubs and those private games have come from the private games that used to run before the clubs were around. So there were, you know, home games in Austin before these clubs were around. And most of the home games, when the clubs have opened up, moved into the clubs So that kind of answers your question. The difference, of course, would be that you can't really play on credit in the clubs because you actually have to use the club's chips. Now, I don't know if guys are extending each other credit and buying their lending. You know, I I don't look at it as credit as if someone actually has the money. I look at credit as like book credit. You're not playing on book credit in the club, right? Now, someone can hand me five grand or can hand me 5K in chips, but someone has paid for that though with the club. So you're using the club's chips, right? But they're in private rooms and you can control the lineup and you can do whatever you want. 
You know what I'm saying? Like it's just a home game that's in the club because I think that all the players have agreed and the proprietor has agreed that it's just easier to do it in the club, right? Or the club basically sets a fee that's so much lower than what the home game was charging. No one's going to go to the home game. So the only real recourse for the home game proprietor is to move it into the club at the, at the, at the lesser fee. And that's basically yeah, I mean, what goes on. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really a perfect example. And I think, you know, if I don't know exactly what sort of legal certainty those clubs are operating on, probably the, you know, the only major change would be if there were greater legal certainty that you would be able to sort of open and continuously operate these clubs without, you know, potentially needing to like grease some palms or right. have to worry about pissing off the wrong person then you would probably just have slightly more clubs and lower overall rake. And that's, um, and it goes to show you though, that that is a very large influence because in Dallas, they don't, although they are starting to open clubs, but Dallas is lagged behind uh, Houston, San Antonio and Austin in terms of these clubs, because there's a lot of lobbying from the Indian casinos because right. if you're in Texas, like you could just drive from Dallas to Choctaw or to Windstar within an hour, an hour and a half. So if they open these card clubs up in Dallas, the Indian casinos feel like it's going to, you know, take a cut out of their bottom line. So they're the ones that are very, very vocal and they have, you know, lobbying interests with Dallas locally, right? I don't necessarily know if they're lobbying the state. I think it's more of their lobbying the, the city to not do it. So yeah, there's all kinds, whereas they don't care. I mean, um, you know, da- you know, the Oklahoma casinos don't care about Austin or San Antonio or Houston. Right. Right. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, living in New York city, you know, the, the sort of impacts of casinos who are maybe slightly farther than you would like lobbying against the creation of casinos that are much more convenient is it's uh very deeply felt Mm -hmm. uh basically two hours in any direction from new york city you have a casino and within two hours new york city you have zero casinos that have poker at least um and i don't i think that's gonna be very hard to change fingers crossed though well for for those of you guys who listen to this podcast you know that we normally start with the hand and go to the interview (laughs) i was gonna say i think we probably just did this backwards right well, you know, whatever. We're 180 episodes into this podcast and we've never done that. We might as well mix it up a little bit. You know, let's not let things get stale. But yeah, I think, so So James, you're, you wanted to talk about a hand that you played. This is coming from, I'm guessing, a private poker facility in Seattle. What do you mean by private? Well, Seattle has clubs, yeah, I guess, right? I guess everything okay. is private but i you know no it's it's from a you know it's from a card room yeah there's a card rooms in washington right they 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 had they played cap no limit too right like cap yeah. spread right yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah so this is from a one three game down there that i played i think it was two days ago so it's pretty recent but so yeah just, this is just to uh ask you a question about the cap structure and i yeah. i would imagine that and again my experience comes from people that have called me in is that at the lower levels the betting cap 
on the street doesn't affect the game as much as, for example, the other real extreme in Seattle and Washington is, I think they do 510 PLO, which ends up being a, almost like a limit Omaha game because mm-hmm. of the betting cap per street, whether I, is it 500 or 200 or something like that. But you know, yeah, if you're playing with 510 blinds, you can see how you're just going to max bet every single street basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it's like, um, 300 is the max bet okay. in most places. And I think the Indian casinos, it's like 500 max mm-hmm. bet, but that's a little further for me, but it won't come into this hand. I think we were about 300 deep, so it would have been impossible to um, have that betting cap affect the action. But yeah, in the you know, I I play the three five game sometimes, and you get into some kind of strange spots where you're kind of getting like a limit type price on the end or you have to, you're like four to one or something. And I usually end up paying those off when uh, maybe it's not always the right decision because of the price, but yeah, it, it definitely, it changes like the three, five game, which is like a thousand cap buy-in. It does have some effect there. One effect is you can't, you shouldn't be bluffing as frequently, which um, like reduces some of the skill level um, in the games. Anyway, any more questions about the the betting structure? No. So it's three hundred cap, three hundred per street, basically. Yeah. yeah. But you can, but you can raise. Well, you can raise up to four times or something. Yeah, yeah. There's no, so you can't five bet in this game, okay. which also occasionally comes up. Yeah. Yeah. So in this particular hand, um, there's a straddle on the button for eight, and we're in the small blind with king 10 of clubs so the action in these games will start in the small blind Mm -hmm. if the um straddles on the button sure and um i had king 10 of clubs in the small blind and i opened to 20 i think like this is the bottom so like i'm not opening king nine suited here it's um i think the game was six or seven handed at this point but yeah i think this is like this will be the bottom of my opening range here as far as like suited kings go. And I don't really want to like, I don't know, like I've experimented before with like limping sometimes here with like strong hands when I think that the other players are a little squeeze happy and then coming in with the limp uh, three bet. But I think this particular hand, we won't really be able to continue if we get raised here so i I don't know i think it functions nicely as an open so we open to 20 the big blind who's on my direct left calls the low jack calls and the other players fold um what do you think about the pre-flop strategy here um either barter jack you want to jump well i i i do think it's a unique situation so when we do when we there are, so in Texas, it's a little bit different. Well, they'll have ultimate last action, the straddle on the button, which I think is ridiculous and no limit hold'em. I actually think it kind of kills the game. I, I hate button straddles anyway in, in hold'em, but in LA, it goes in order like you're talking about, but there are some places where there's ultimate last action. So here, yeah, you know, sometimes 
possibly, and I'm not a huge fan of like, you know, limping or limp re-raising, but sometimes because it's a, in a nine-handed game, it's a very, very extreme example um, that you could sometimes, especially if it's, if the straddle is just two times the big blind, you could sometimes from the big blind, and I know you're in the small blind, but from the big blind, I think that you could sometimes make a case for playing like a limp only strategy because you're getting sort of a half price in the big blind, but it's very, very difficult to balance. It's kind of similar to what they're talking about new school and tournaments where like you, if you're going to V pip when it gets folded to you in the small blind with antis and a no limit tournament, a lot of these guys will limp and they'll develop a limp call limp re-raise or limp fold range. Right. I think that that has some viability. The fact that it's seven or six hand, six or seven handed though, just probably just makes this a straight open. Going back to what we were talking about before, I bet if you were to look at, say, uh, equilibrium ranges and a nine-handed game that King-10 suited, if you could somehow tell the computer that you were the first person in, not from under the gun, but the actual first person in where you are up against eight ranges behind you, it would probably be a fold. Um, But this is, of course, where live poker differs from equilibrium ranges like i think you can play too tight in live poker because and this is where the solver stuff is is misused you know people are calling with hands that are that they're not supposed to be calling with right they're playing invisible antis so i always raise like king queen offsuit from under the gun even nine-handed ace jack offsuit sometimes even ace 10 and i think that those are still profitable opens just because people call with so much trash so I would certainly raise in that spot as well, especially six or seven handed. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Do we have any information about the button? Because I think that has a pretty big impact on whether we want to adopt kind of a limping strategy or yeah. if not, what sort of size we're going to be choosing. So the button was <laughs> not very good. It seemed like he was adopting kind of a super system strategy of betting a lot. <laughs> and um, yeah, he was like betting in these multi-way pots with like bottom pair and then showing down. And yeah, so he's like, he's aggressive, but yeah, he'll, I think he'll be making betting mistakes by betting hands such that. When he's called, he'll only be called by a stronger range. So, okay. Well, then I like your size. You know, there's a question of like with our range and also potentially with our hand, because in these potentially low frequency preflop situations, I don't think it's as important to choose like one size with our entire range where we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to necessarily be found out by our opponents that, you know, we're splitting our range preflop in some sort of discernible way. So, you know, when, a, when, we, when we're up against an opponent like this who is going to be betting too much in position, uh, I personally think it sort of reduces the disadvantage of being out of position because we, we essentially get to play in position relatively frequently because uh, we get very good information if our opponent checks back. And typically when we check, we'll face a bet. And so we can just, you know, sort of have the opportunity to essentially play in position. You know, it's not, it's obviously not as good as actually being in position. Um, but yeah, the, the types of people who are tough to play against when they're in position are people who are 
you know, very sort of calculated about when they're going to bet and when they're going to take the option of checking back. And people who just basically always bet when they have some kind of reasonable equity, they're not taking advantage of that privilege of being in position. And so I think it's not going to be a detriment to have this player in the pot with us. And so we, we're not sort of compelled to choose a sizing that defines their range very well. You know, and whenever someone straddles on the button, we can assume they're going to be calling fairly wide, I think, when getting a good price. And I, I don't think that's something that we want to discourage. So I like 20, or I think you can even go smaller, but I think 20 makes a lot of sense as a size here. I like that point too about like limping from the big blind when it's kind of like a whatever a min straddle. I think, yeah, a lot of our range will kind of want to do that to try to see a flop. So I think that can definitely make some sense. But um, yeah, I thought that was a really good point. All right. Are you ready for the flop? Recap who's who's in the pot with us when we get to the flop. So the yeah, the button actually folded. So I'll talk a little bit about the villains here. Um, we're called by the big blind and the low jack. The big blind is he seems like he's pretty decent. He's he acts very quickly, so his experience. I thought he might have been like kind of an online player just because he like seemed a little bit impatient, but I also saw him flat ace king earlier. Which I, you know, thought was kind of weird. Um, and like, not that that can never be a good strategy, but um, I think, yeah, he he's not three betting very much. And the uh, the low jack called us as well. So the low jack is a mid forties guy who I think is a decent player, but will not be bluffing very much, and will not be. Um, he'll be like, he'll be a little bit snug. Like, like he's not, he's not, I think he might be beating the game. And what else do I want to say about him? Yeah. I don't think he'll put us in too many tough spots, like with bluffs. I think we can comfortably fold. Like if he starts putting in big bets. Yeah. So those are, those are our villains. So big blind is the maybe online player who has shown he doesn't always three bet. Very strong hands pre-flop, and yeah. low jack is the 40s guy who's yeah. not a very big bluffer and probably doesn't overcall. Yeah, big blind, um, like three bet all in when he was a bit shorter, like with a combo draw, like like a pair and a flush draw. Um, so he'll be, I'll expect like some kind of bluffs from from him. All right, so 61 in the pot after their $7 rake. <laughs> and uh, we get a flop of nine of diamonds, four of diamonds, three of clubs. So I have king, 10 of clubs, and I'm out of position against two players. I kind of think this one can go either way. Like, we don't have to see that here being out of position against two players. But I think, like, with the backdoor flush draw... Um, we'll pick up equity like on a decent amount of the deck. I also think like barreling on a queen or jack can be pretty good because we'll get like we'll pick up more equity with the uh, gut shot, and we could also potentially barrel on an ace. And then we have the king or ten. Um, I think betting here will clean up our king as an out a lot of the time. 
because our opponents will be folding like king jack and king queen when we bet here and um i think like they'll have a lot of they'll have some hands that will fold so the double barrel like fives through eights and like maybe some nine x will fold like on a queen or something um so i yeah i bet half pot here like 30 into 60 yeah um what did you guys think about this c-bet like bart what would you be thinking here what was what was the flop again i missed yeah no worries so yeah we have king 10 of clubs and the flop is nine of diamonds four of diamonds three of clubs yeah i mean i think that this is definitely a a spot where i would c-bet just because you've got these sort of dynamic ragged boards as i call them these are really good multi-barrel multi-barrel boards uh where and especially when you've got a backdoor here too, there's a, a fair amount of, I mean, the only thing that might even be a, like a little bit better if it was like nine deuce three or something like that. You said it was nine, three, four, right? Yeah. Nine, three, four. I mean, these types of boards where there, it contains like a, a, a ragged card that's sort of high and then two low cards that people really shouldn't have in their hands. Yes. There's a flush draw out there. But any card above a 10 is going to give you additional equity for the most part and a, or a backdoor club, whether you want to say it's barreling equity or, you know, you know, if you had queen jack, actually it would give you, you know, queen jack on this type of board. Like there's a lot of cards that are going to give you equity, but, you know, you can represent a queen, you can represent an ace that comes, obviously a king or, king or a 10 fall into, you know, the pair types of hands and then, you know, a queen. It's just very, very difficult for somebody with an eight uh, or say, for example, a nine uh, to continue on and play like a large pot and be able to call basically three bets. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're always going to triple barrel off, but sometimes even in this situation, it's even a little bit better if you're multi-way because it puts a lot of pressure on the guy in the middle. It puts a lot of pressure on the guy in the middle because he's going to worry about somebody from behind. So as long as someone hasn't flopped a set on a board where there shouldn't be any type of two-pair represented and no possibility of a straight, and it's not that connecting, it's very, very difficult for someone to hold on. And I use this type of board as an example, too, in limp pots, like I say, attacking limp pots, or I'll also say attacking a field better. This is a situation where if you get a board like this and the preflop raiser checks and then someone else bets, you can attack that person that had just called preflop because it's very, I mean, they could be betting with anything. They could be betting with second pair. They could be betting with sixes or sevens. It's really hard for them to continue on with just an eight plus. So I look at this situation, you know, in a very similar way on this texture. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Bart makes a great point in highlighting the sort of multi-way nature as maybe making this an even more advantageous CBIT than in a heads-up pot, where given the extra money that's available to win, the pressure on the person in the middle, and I think also sort of like an emotional detachment from the hand that maybe isn't quite the same with the sort of machismo nature of the heads-up situation, really plays into your favor, where, you know, I think like, let's say you're up against big blind and it's heads up and they're probably not going to fold queen of diamonds, jack of hearts. You know, it's, it's slightly too obvious that you could be bluffing. They don't have the pressure from the player behind and they don't want to just 
give you the pot. So I think, you know, the fact when, when those sorts of hands start calling, barreling becomes more difficult because your opponents have a sort of coverage that it presents risk where, you know, opponents not defending those types of hands, not defending a size, not defending two overcard hands, um, that risk kind of disappears. And so I think, you know, I, I wouldn't, I actually wouldn't mind going just a touch larger just to be even more sure that I wasn't dragging along these sort of like two overcard hands. Um, obviously, like, you know, what are you going to do if your opponent has a flush draw? They're, they're going to call or raise you. So, you know, that's, that's kind of out of the question in terms of like being optimistic about getting those sorts of hands to fold. But in terms of like the ace of diamonds, jack of clubs, like if we can get that to fold from big blind uh, by choosing something like 40, or 45 instead of 30, I think I might prefer that as well. But yeah, I think the multi-way nature of this spot really, really favors you just because there's so much that can't and just won't be very motivated to try and win this pot uh, facing aggression from the strongest range. Yeah, I think also like being a little bit, being a little bit more confident on barreling on those overs um, is nice. So I think if we went... Yeah, maybe going like 40 or something, we could be a little bit more confident on barreling on those cards. But I think the formation is nice for me because I don't think that the low jack will be very sticky. And I think that the big blind, like the villain, would be more sticky if they were last to act. But being sandwiched in the middle puts them in kind of a tough spot. I've been kind of a stickler with language lately because I, I really like being able to get to the heart of what we're actually trying to do. Sure. And so I want to resist the word confidence there. You're going to barrel on a queen or a jack that's not a diamond. So we're not looking for confidence. We're looking to not lose money <laughs> when that happens. So I think, yeah, it's really, it's really just about sort of protecting our bluffs against uh hands that if they decide to call will do really well against us on those cards. And so, yeah, we, we, we really need to make sure that hands which punish us uh, on these barrel cards don't continue. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily a matter of confidence as much just a matter of, you know, we're going to barrel, so let's Getting make sure those, those hands, those hands fold. fold. Yeah. yeah, sure. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, we get, uh, so we just get called by the big blind. So as we spoke about, that's probably going to be a little bit of a tighter range. And um, low jack folds. And we get the turn king of hearts. Um, so it's nine of diamonds, four of diamonds, three of clubs on the flop. You get a turn king of hearts. And I didn't like my play here. <laughs> Um, so it's a little bit of like a strange spot because like we turn top pair, so we should be able to like go for some more value here. At the same time, like I'll have the, I have the weakest King that I would have here. And, um, it's not like when I'm called, it's a little bit hard to be, called by worse like 9x can continue 
or might continue sometimes. Maybe maybe a tight player would fold it. I think this guy will continue with 9x. So we could continue to go for value against that hand. I think if I check, it does look like I have showdown value now. And so betting, yeah, betting might allow me to be called by um, like 9x a little bit more frequently. Um, yeah. I decided to, well, I went for kind of a small size of 50 into 120. And, um, you know, there, I've seen some spots where like, it can make sense like to lead cards that are really favorable for your range for a small size. And this seems like sort of a similar situation, but I'm not, I don't know. I'm not entirely thrilled with my sizing here. I think checking, I think there's a case for checking. I think there's a case for going bigger as well. What do you guys think here? What do you think here, Bart? I mean, I think it's fine. I mean, I guess you could go larger. I don't think that the, the your kicker with the 10 is really going to be relevant uh, in this particular spot, besides the fact that if he's got, what's the front door, diamonds? Yeah, like mm-hmm. King Jack of diamonds or something. Yeah, that's pretty much the only real relevance. I also think that people will sometimes, they'll think about trying to get tricky with it, or they'll be like, well, I'm only going to get one street here, so I'll check and you know, maybe I'll bet the river. And what ends up happening is, is that if you allow the turn to get checked through, then you basically that sort of weaker part of their range, some of that doesn't call at the end. So say for example, again, it's nine, three, four, right? So say for example, he's got like 10, nine. Now, if you come out and bet the turn, 40 or 50, he very well might call again. Whereas if you checked and he checked it back and the river's like a jack or a queen, well, forget about your one street. Also yeah. too, if he has a draw and he decides to check it back, because like you had just said, you're checking, it looks like you're not going to check fold. You have showdown value. You've lost the value there too, right? You don't get the value on the turn. So I would definitely continue to bet here, even if you look at it as really only a one street you know, type of scenario or a two street total type of hand. Although I wouldn't really have a problem going for three streets here. I mean, I, I think that when you start a continuation bet with overcards and you run into top pair on a subsequent street that really should have no connection whatsoever to your opponent that you really should go for three streets. This is a little subtly differently because he could have the King X of diamonds. But for example, if the board was rainbow, and you had bet and got called, and then you bet again on the turn, and then the river like paired the bottom card, I would certainly go for three streets, you know, absolutely for sure. So I would almost always be betting here. The The question is sizing. You know, again, this might be a situation where the solvers might say that you're actually allowed to put in an over bet when you reach the turn with top pair, and you might be, you know, making an over bet bluff too, to be balanced, right? Whereas in live play, I play a little bit more unbalanced and a little bit more exploitable where I might tend to overbet with a combo draw as a bluff and I might to take your hand for this sort of medium sizing. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty natural to be a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, I don't want to call this like marginal value, but like 
you know, not the greatest value hand in a spot where we were really enthusiastic about our ability to bluff both on the flop and on the turn. You know, we, we established that our opponent's range would be relatively strong calling our flop bet, and also that we would have a significant amount of barrel ability as a bluff. So when we actually have value, you know, our, our ability to, you know, we can't go from that mindset logically to now having top hair and saying like, I'm going to get like a ton of value at a really high frequency, which is not to say that you shouldn't bet three times for value. It's just to say that like, we should expect if we're going to bet to see a significant amount of folds, unless our opponent's range is rather strong, in which case we still probably will see a lot of folds because a strong range on the flop when the king is, the turn is the king is no longer a very strong range. Anyways, in terms of sizing, I, you know, I do like betting. I don't think we benefit enough from checking because for a couple reasons. One, you're up against a player that you think is competent. And a check here, I think, signals showdown value in a way where it's, I, I don't think we can check and then all of a sudden sixes is just going to call like our river bet. That can happen, but it, it, it's not very consistent for our opponent. I think that hand is maybe, it's, it's quite likely to fold, but maybe is actually more likely to call us at a smaller, sort of at a low frequency if we barrel. Uh, and I think that's sort of my thought here is that our opponent mostly has hands that, you know, fall into, aside from like King X of Diamonds, fall into one of really three major categories. Pairs between fives and eights, a nine, or a draw. I think, you know, draws were, were relatively indifferent, I would say, for most of the sizes we're going to choose on whether they call or fold. I don't think they're going to be losing a huge amount of money. Like, let's say the nut flush or a hand like queen jack, queen 10, jack 10 of diamonds. Like, you know, those fold great. If they call, it's not the, it's not the worst thing in the world either. But really, I think we just, my, my thought here is let's just be optimistic. And like, yes, we think our opponent's going to fold a lot of 9x here, that they're going to fold a lot of these lower pairs. But maybe they're just going to not believe you. <laughs> and now that we have a king, we can be a little bit more optimistic about that possibility. And I actually like sizing up here for that reason where I don't think you're, I don't think the odds you present your opponent are going to be that relevant based on how most people at 1-3 think if they have these hands like a 9 or 5s through 8s. I think it's just going to have more to do with do they believe you or not. And if they don't believe you, now that you have a king, that's really nice. And so we, we might as well benefit disproportionately from the times that your opponent falls into that category. So so I like going a little bit bigger. I agree with Bart that like I do think overbetting kind of sends off some alarm bells that maybe we don't want to send off, but I'm not a big fan of 50. I would prefer to go something like 90 to 100 here. The other thing that's nice about that is if like the situation gets even better for you, let's say, you know, you river a 10 or a king, or you just decide that something about the, you know, the events that transpire between now and the river, you're very confident about going all in or, or trying to get max value, you've made it easier for yourself to get the max, uh, which would be to set up an all-in sizing on the river, which when you bet 50 
Uh, I guess you're still sort of in that range, but now you're talking about a relatively large bet. So, so I would prefer to go a little bit larger here, uh, something in the 90 to 100 range. Yeah, it's it's a little bit, I don't know. I wonder like how much of a contradiction is it that we're saying like, oh, all these over cards are like really good bluff cards. But then we're also like going for value on these cards as well. I guess we our opponent just doesn't have enough strong hands that yeah, exactly. are punishing us for us so that such that there's there's enough like nine X that will call maybe tens or which we block, I guess. Maybe jacks. <laughs> it's also they didn't three by ace king. Yeah, there's a couple other important things to say about betting. One is that it's not a bad thing to get sevens to fold. Because when sevens checks back and hits a seven, you're going to lose a big bet on the river. Or you might bet and get raised and call. So getting sevens to fold... It's only going to put in more money when it's ahead of us at this point. Right. I mean, I am also asserting that there's a chance it calls you. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we would rather put that to a decision than just check and allow that hand to check back. And that's that's also true with a hand like nine eight, and yeah, the other thing is like you're not saving money against king jack of diamonds by checking. That hand's gonna bet, so and, and you're not gonna check fold. So so you're resigned to like losing a significant amount of money in this hand against like king jack and king queen of diamonds specifically, mm-hmm. uh, or king nine. Like you're just gonna lose a lot of money against those hands. So there's nothing we can do about that at this point. All right. So after we bet 50, our opponent shoves for, I think it was a little bit over pot. I think it was like 240 into 220 or whatever. So we're getting a little bit less than two to one here. And, um, yeah, um, I guess I had a small, or I can I can speak about the body language like later, but um, I don't know. Like what what I was I guess I'll talk about what I was thinking a little bit. So I was kind of thinking that for the small size, our opponent can profitably call with a lot of flush draws such that they might not be interested in going all in here. But I was thinking about it afterwards, and I think at the same time, like, the 50 can look weak, and they might, like, try and put a lot of pressure on us with a flush draw, like with a nut flush draw, which will have a lot of outs. And then there's also a lot of combo draws here, like queen jack of diamonds, queen ten of diamonds, you know, that um all that um i'm not sure if our opponent has like threes and fours pre-flop but he was a little he was kind of loose so i think it's definitely possible we could give him like half of those combos there i don't know our blockers aren't too relevant like i mean we unlock bluffs is what i would say um i think like king king nine could potentially be in there so we've like blocked one combo of king nine suited. 
but um, yeah, I don't know. What are you thinking here, Art? Well, it's a, it's a little bit of a catch twenty two in my eyes. I don't like making folds at small stakes because I see a lot of like people do wacky shit, right? There aren't a whole lot of two pair combos here that are represented. Besides the fact that you said maybe like king nine, unless this guy is really really way far out there. I think it's something to note that he's in the big blind, so he feels like he is already in for some money. I mean, you're raising it to 20 and he's only in for three in the straddle yeah. for eight. It really shouldn't make that much of a difference, but I, I would I think still... He might, sorry, I think he might have kind of like a hijack opening range, like something like that. Um, and I would still find yeah. it shocking if you ever folded threes or fours preflop. So, I mean, when you look at it, and then, of course, you have to start, start think, well, is there a possibility he might have king X of diamonds that's even lower and he's just going with it. Like, re- put it this way the wider that he plays, the more I'm going to call. If you hadn't noticed that he was playing like super wide where he doesn't have like king seven of diamonds, then it's, uh, it's pretty dicey. I think that this hand is actually fairly close. I don't think that there's really one necessarily extreme or the other. Usually, when someone's representing an unbelievably thin value range, I will usually call the other thing to note too is is that sometimes sets are going to be raised off, right? Now he could obviously have a full complement of all the sets. Like he could have nine combos, nines, threes, four. Some of those are going to be raised off, maybe not top, maybe not top set, but maybe he raises off like three of the combos, three of the nine combos. Yeah. So that leaves you with like six combos of sets. You could also say the same for flush draws, though, like on the flop. Yeah, that's true. Although I don't know how how often someone just raises with a naked flush draw, like a it's pretty it's kind of rare. Unless it was a, be like a combo draw, like five six of diamonds. I think it would be more in line with him picking up some sort of combo draw, like jack ten of diamonds, queen jack of diamonds. But I still think that the value portion, as long as he's not sort of playing king x of diamonds like a low king x of diamonds the value portion of his range is probably going to be two times more you look at this as ratios and equities this is kind of like what i talk about stove in my head like it's going to be at least two times more the value com the value range versus his draw range and the thing about his value range is that with the exception of king nine which you're you have a little bit of equity against you're drawing dead against his value range. What I mean is, is that if he has sets, you're drawing dead. You have zero. So one of the shortcuts I like to do when I do stove my head is sort of like really round the, the range down to make it very easy for myself to calculate in my head. So let's say that you've got 0% equity two-thirds of the time, and then the other one-third of the time, let's say that you have 75% equity right? Like versus combo draws with one card to come. So, I mean, really the, it's just an average problem. You've got two trials of zero and one trial of 75. So zero plus zero plus zero is 75, five by three. I I think there would be more draws in that range though. I guess he doesn't always have to like raise his flush draws here, but I, I would say like, I would maybe give him like, just to get into the nitty gritty a little bit, like Six, maybe we give him six combos of sets or something, but I think he can also have like 
10, 12 combos of flush draws here. Like, you know, any nut flush draw could take this line pretty easily, I think. And then, yeah, queen jack, king jack, jack 10, um, 5, 6, 6, 7, maybe like 4, 5 of diamonds. So. Yeah, see, this is where I look at the ranges a little bit differently that people don't usually wait to the turn unless they've picked up additional equity to make those draws. It's not going to be not flush draw raising turn all in. I, I, I find that hard to believe as a, as a call on the flop. If they're going to play it fast, they would do it on the flop. I don't really see a whole lot of delayed turn semi bluffs, even though it can be effective for fold equity unless something else is picked up. So that's why it wouldn't surprise me if it was Jack 10 suited queen Jack suited that was picked up on the turn. But even if you had equal draws to equal value, you know, so then it's just one trial of zero and one trial of 75. So it's 75 plus zero divided by two, right? That's your, you would need 37% equity to call. Uh, what did you say the pot odds were? You were getting two to one? Yeah, like a little bit worse than that. So a little bit worse than two to one. So two to one, of course, is 33%. So if he's shoving for over the over pot size um you probably need 35 36 percent equity to call i just don't feel like there is an even amount of draws versus value here so it would probably lean me towards being very close but when i get into these situations where it's close at the low stakes i call (laughs) to be honest with you i call that's why i don't i don't think it's gonna be a big deal either way yeah, I don't think it's really egregious either way. Yeah. To be perfectly honest with you. Because yeah. even if he even if you have like 30%, even if like, okay, he's got let's say he's got one and a half times more draws than than value. So let's say that you give him three trials of draws and two trials of val excuse me, three trials of value and two trials of draws, right? That's one and a half times. So it's zero plus zero plus zero plus 75 plus 75 that's 150 divided by five is 30 that's by the way how you calculate stuff in your head because you can do that in stove stove's just a calculator that's all it is poker cruncher poker stove you can do that you can do it in your head if you assign it like that i know a lot of people aren't for some reason arithmetic math has always come pretty quickly to me and percentages, a lot of people in the general public get intimidated by percentages. And I'm like, just drop the percentage. Just drop, you know, what is, you know, what's 20% of 90? And my God, like if you asked 100 people on the street what 20% of 90 is, like I bet you no more than 10 people would be able to do that in their head. 18. I'm serious. <laughs> it's just two times nine. <laughs> That's all it is, right? It's just two times nine. Like, you, yeah. you know, but um, yeah, so I mean, again, like even if it was one and a half times uh, value to draws, you were looking at having 30% equity, you need 35. That's why I'm saying like, I don't think it's egregious. Like, okay, maybe you make a call here. Where yeah, yeah, I agree. A I think few it's percentage, quite close. It's yeah. a few percentage behind. Yeah. One of the other things that it might not be relevant in this game because of the cap nature of the buy-in, excuse me, the cap nature of the, the betting is that uh, I always talked about in cap games in LA, especially in the commerce games, if it was close, I would call to build a stack up. You don't think about that in cash games. Why do you need to build a stack up? If you're in a restricted buy-in game, sometimes you actually do need to build a stack up 
And it doesn't matter if you lose and the other guy gets more chips, as long as he's not going to walk away, that's great. Also, it works into your image as well, where I know that if I lose, I'm going to immediately rebound to the cap. But if I win, now I'm going to have, thinking about like a 510 game uh, at Commerce, oh, I'll have three or 4,000 in front of me. And now that's going to be intimidating to the players, and they're going to play worse against me. So whenever I would be in this situation and it was close, I would call. If I, wanted, if I gave up a couple of percentage points, then fine. Uh, I, I felt like I could give it, I would get it back in, in the result of what would happen long, later on in the session based upon having a large stack or based upon the chips going to a bad player. See what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Jack, do you have a strong feeling here? Or? I would just, I would call. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just That's think there's how enough. I feel about it too. Yeah. <laughs> there's enough bluffs that are possible relative to like the value that makes sense that. I just feel pretty good about calling. You know, it's a situation where we clearly, I think, have bluffs and have hands that have to fold, and we have a king. And I think we've, you know, I think our bet of 50 looks like a bet that might result in a fold, such that your opponent, I think, given the description that there's someone who seems to be thinking and maybe trying to think about what we might do and craft their you know, actions based on that, we'll, we'll pick up on that at least some of the time. So yeah, I, f- I, feel, good about, I feel good about call. Mm. All right, some bad news. We don't get to see what he had because I decided on a fold, but yeah, I don't know. I took a little bit of time. He looked like kind of calm, I don't know. Like I didn't, I didn't get a huge live read either way. And you know, it's hard with like the masks and the, the plexiglass, but yeah, I think call might be a little bit of better. I, you know, I, I did some like combo counting in poker cruncher afterwards. And I think we might be getting like a little bit of the right price, but what was the it, timing? It was Do you pretty, remember? Yeah. It was pretty fast, which, you know, I think weight does weight it a little bit more towards draws. Yeah. I think it's yeah. just, it's very classic. This is just, I think, a human tendency is we, we sort of fall on this weird, like, level one versus level zero plane. Or maybe it's level two versus level one, whatever the hell it is, but where basic reverse psychology just works because we're trained to do it and trained not to, like, perceive it (laughs) so i think the the basic intuition is like if you are weak look strong uh and the way you look strong i think in poker or the the way that i think people just tend to try and look strong in poker is by acting decisively yeah um yeah if he had like pretended to think about it for a while and then went all in i think it's an easier fold probably i don't know i don't feel too bad about it though no i don't think uh, yeah. Another thing was, oh, I forgot. I wanted to bring this up too. Is I think he can have ace king here because we saw him flat it earlier. So that's yeah, some more I mean, combos if he, if, we lose too. Yeah, I mean that's really important detail. That, that I mean that's that's definitely that's a lot of combos when, when you when you add <laughs> yeah when you add that in it's, it's um but you never found out huh um no no. He said he would tell me afterwards, but I said, like, well, 
I don't know if I'd believe you afterwards. <laughs> but he showed another bluff earlier, so it could be like maybe he had it that time. Oh, well. Great mysteries of life. Yeah. yeah. I'll call next time and find out for you guys for the podcast. I like the point of building a stack in these capped games. It's not something... I'm mostly playing in private games these days where I can buy up to the largest stack or the second largest stack. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, that is, that is important. And Absolutely. obviously how important it is depends on how deep everybody else at the table is. I'll give you an extreme but, example. Like the best five, five game in LA is at Hollywood park. So, uh, the bike hustler and, um, yeah, the bike and hustler both have 1K caps on their 5.5 game. Commerce has a 500 cap. Hollywood Park has a 500 cap. And Wine Gardens, I think, is like 600 or something like that. But for whatever reason, Hollywood Park just sort of gets a different, a very, very recreational game. Like a lot of players that just go there. And that is the best 5.5 game in town. But as people try to always ask me, Oh, what's the win rate in these games? I'm like, it's just, you got to understand that it's, it's very, very dependent. And will your win rate go down? Your win rate will go down the higher, the more volume you play because you're not always playing at the best times. If I were to say, I, if I were to play 15 hours or 15 to 20 hours of five, five, 500 cap at Hollywood park, you know, maybe I could have a win rate of 75 bucks an hour in a 500 cap game. But if I played 40 hours a week, I wouldn't have that because it wouldn't always be at the best times of the, of the, if I'm playing at the best times, the 15 to the 20 hours. With that being said, in these cap games, like the longer the sessions you play, the more you win per hour because the deeper that you are and that image comes into play. So if you were at a very good splashy five, five game that had a 500 cap, and you had to buy in for 500 and people were straddling and there were mega whales at the table with over 2000, you can see how critical it is to build your stack up. Yeah. I, you know, I've been thinking too about like the best time to put in volume and like, you know, how happy playing like 50 hours of poker in a week makes me just not very. Um, and yeah, like, I don't know. A lot of these games are better at night. Like, the straddle gets put on more. And, um, yeah, there's the action is looser. So it's something important to consider. And, um, yeah, if you're thinking about quitting your job and playing poker full-time, understand that not all the hours are going to be equally as profitable as, like, when you go there on a Friday night. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Bart, we really, really appreciate your time. I'm surprised it's taken us four years of doing this show to get you on, considering your uh, you know, long-standing presence in this industry and in the podcasting space in general. Uh, but I'm glad that we were finally able to do it. We would love to have you back at some point. And I hope that you know this is just the beginning for yeah. you and for Crush Live Poker. Why don't we give Bart a chance to yeah talk a little bit about crush life poker and um explain like what our listeners might get out of um checking out that site well like i said in the beginning i mean it's a training site and we've been going for eight years strong mostly about live poker i do multiple podcasts a week i do a call-in show i do uh, uh my sort of flagship 
CLP podcast, which goes over the hands that I play for the week. And then, you know, we have no limit videos that come out each week, which is myself uh, and a couple other different coaches that I have going over uh, hands played usually on live streams. And we do a turn. Jonathan Little does a tournament video each month. Uh, and I do a, a Omaha eight video once a month and we have some PLO content too. And yeah, so it's mostly, you know, live poker, live poker oriented basically. And, you know, if you want to check out the site, you can actually get the first 37 days for free. If at checkout, you use the code in the coupon code field, uh, BHA 2020, BHA 2020. If you want to check out the site, you'll get the first 37 days for free. All right. You heard it here. Check that out. It's, it's great content. Uh, as we mentioned, or I guess we didn't mention on air, but if you've, uh, if you've enjoyed episodes with Peter O'Neill, then you, you can enjoy some of his video editing magic. Oh, and he the actually, Peter, the show. Peter O'Neill has some videos on Crush Light That's Poker right, too, and yeah. our, in our free bonus area as well. Yep. Right. He does. All right, check those out as well. We love Peter. Uh, And thanks again, Bart. Thank you, James. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll talk to you all next week. All right, great.